0: The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. From the Harvard Classics, Folklore and Fable, volume 17, page 234, comes this story. Many years ago there lived an emperor who was so excessively fond of grand new clothes that he spent all of his money upon them, that he might be very fine. He did not care about his soldiers nor about the theater, only he liked to drive out and show his new clothes. He had a coat for every hour of the day, and just as they say of a king, he is, a, he is in council, so they always said of him, the emperor is in his wardrobe. In the great city in which he lived, it was always very merry. Every day came many strangers, and one day two rogues came. They gave themselves out as weavers and declared that they could weave the finest anyone could imagine. Not only were their colors and patterns, they said, uncommonly beautiful, but the clothes made of this stuff possessed the wonderful quality that they became invisible to anyone who was unfit for the office he held, or he was incorrigibly stupid." Those would be capital clothes, thought the emperor. If I wore those, I should be able to find out what men in my empire are fit for the places that I've assigned them. I could tell the clever from the stupid. Yes, this would be woven for me directly. And he gave the two rogues a great deal of cash that they might begin their work immediately. As for them, they put up two looms and pretended to be working, but they had nothing at all on their looms. They at once demanded the finest silk and costliest gold. This they put into their own pockets and worked at the empty loom till late into the night. "'I should like to know how far they have gotten with my clothes,' thought the Emperor but he felt quite uncomfortable when he thought that those who were not fit for their office could not see it. He believed indeed that he had nothing to fear for himself, but yet yet he preferred first to send someone else to see how matters stood. All the people in the city knew that these clothes had this power. They were anxious to see how bad or how stupid their neighbors were. I will send my honest old minister to the weavers, thought the emperor. He can judge best how my new clothes look, for he has sense, and and no one understands his office better than he does. Now the good old minister went out to the hall where the two rogues sat working at the empty looms. Mercy on us, thought the old minister, as he opened his eyes wide. I cannot see anything at all. "'but he didn't say this. "'Both the rogues begged him to be so good as to come near "'and ask if he did not approve of the colors and the patterns. "'Then they pointed to the empty loom, "'and the the poor old minister went on opening his eyes, "'but he could see nothing. "'There was nothing for him to see. "'Mercy!' thought he. "'Can I indeed be so stupid? "'I never thought that, and not a soul must know if I am.' I'm not fit for my office. No, it will never do for me to tell that I could not see the new clothing. Don't you say anything to it? Asked one, as he went on weaving. Oh, it is charming, it is enchanting, answered the old minister, as he peered through his spectacles. What a fine pattern, and, and what awesome colors. Yes, I shall tell the emperor that I am very much pleased." with the new clothes.' "'Well, we're glad of that,' said both weavers, and they named the colors and explained the strange patterns. The old minister listened attentively that he might be able to repeat it when the emperor came, and and he did so. Now the rogues asked for more money and silk and gold, WHICH THEY DECLARED THEY WANTED FOR WEAVING. THEY PUT IT ALL INTO THEIR OWN POCKETS, AND NOT A THREAD WAS PUT ON THE LOOM. THEY CONTINUED TO WORK AT THE EMPTY FRAMES AS BEFORE. THE emperor SOON SENT AGAIN DISPATCHING ANOTHER HONEST OFFICER OF THE COURT TO SEE HOW THE WEAVING WAS GOING, AND IF THE CLOTHING WOULD SOON BE READY. HE fared JUST LIKE THE FIRST. HE LOOKED AND LOOKED, BUT AS THERE WAS NOTHING TO BE SEEN BUT THE EMPTY LOOMS, HE COULD SEE NOTHING. Is not that a pretty piece of clothing? asked the two rogues, and they displayed and explained the handsome pattern. I'm not stupid, thought the man. It must be my good office. I must not be fit for it. It is funny enough, but but I must not let it be noticed. And so he praised this clothing which he did not see, and expressed his pleasure at the beautiful colors and charming patterns? Yes, it is enchanting, he told the emperor. All the people in the town were talking of the gorgeous stuff. The emperor wished to see it himself, while it was still on the loom. With a whole crowd of chosen men among them, also the two honest statesmen who had already been there, he went to the two cunning rogues, who were now weaving with might and "'and mane without fiber or thread. "'Is not that splendid?' said the two statesmen, "'who had already been there once. "'Does not your majesty remark the pattern and the colors?' "'And they pointed to the empty loom. "'for they thought the others could see the stuff. "'What's this?' thought the emperor. "'I can see nothing at all.' THIS IS TERRIBLE. AM I STUPID? AM I NOT FIT TO BE emperor? THAT WOULD BE THE MOST DREADFUL THING THAT COULD EVER HAPPEN TO ME. OH, IT'S VERY PRETTY, HE SAID ALOUD. IT HAS OUR HIGHEST APPROBATION. AND HE NODDED IN A CONTENTED WAY AND GAZED AT THE EMPTY LOOM, FOR HE WOULD NOT SAY THAT HE SAW NOTHING. "'The whole suit of people that he had with him "'looked and looked and saw nothing any more than the rest, "'but like the emperor they all said, "'That's so pretty,' "'and counseled him to wear the splendid new clothes "'for the first time at the great procession "'that was presently to take place. "'It is splendid! It is excellent!' "'went from mouth to mouth. "'On all sides there seemed to be general rejoicing.' and the emperor gave the rogues the title of imperial cloth weavers. The whole night before the morning on which the procession was to take place, the rogues were up and kept more than sixteen candles burning. The people could see that they were hard at work completing the emperor's new clothes. They pretended to take the clothing down from the loom, they made cuts in the air with great scissors, they sewed with needles without thread, and at last they said, Now the clothes are ready. The emperor came himself with his noblest cavaliers. The two rogues lifted up one arm as they were, as if they were holding something, and they said, See, here are the trousers. Here is the coat, here is the cloak, and so on. It's as light as spider's web. One would think one had nothing on, but... "'That's just the beauty of it.' "'Yes,' said all the cavaliers, "'but they could not see anything, for nothing was there. "'Will your imperial majesty please condescend to take off your clothes,' "'said the rogues, "'and then put on your new clothes here in front of the great mirror.' "'The emperor took off his clothes, "'and the rogues pretended to put on him each new garment as it was ready.' and the emperor turned round and round before the mirror. Oh, how well they look! How wonderfully they fit! said everyone. What a pattern! What colors! What a splendid outfit! They're standing outside with... "'The canopy, which is to be borne above your majesty in the procession,' "'announced the headmaster of the ceremonies. "'Well, I'm ready,' replied the emperor. "'Does it not suit me well?' "'And then he turned again to the mirror, "'for he wanted to appear as if he contemplated his adornment with great interest. "'The two chamberlains who were to carry the train "'stooped down with their hands toward the floor, just "'just as if they were picking up the mantle and then they pretended to be holding something in the air. They did not dare let it be noticed that they saw nothing. So the emperor went in procession under the rich canopy, and everyone in the street said, How beautiful are the emperor's new clothes! What a train he has! How gorgeous! How it fits him! No one would let it be perceived that he could see nothing, for that would have shown that he was not fit for his office, or was very stupid. No clothes of the emperors had ever had such a success as these clothing. "'But he has nothing on!' a little child cried out at last. "'Just hear what that innocent says,' said the father. And one whispered to another, "'what the child had said. "'But he has nothing on,' "'said the whole people at length. "'That touched the emperor, "'for it seemed to him that they were right. "'But he thought within himself, "'I must go through with the procession. "'And so he held himself a little higher, "'and the chamberlains held on even tighter "'and carried the train, "'which did not exist.' At all. This story has always been fascinating to me. Because today we have a church. We have a church. That claims it has beautiful clothing on. They examine the tulip. They examine all of the, the wonderful so-called Truths that allow them to continue walking in their sin. They don't see that they're naked. Oh, they see it, but no one is willing to admit it. And so we dress in the finest of clothes. But it only takes a child to say, But look, you don't act like Jesus. Look! Look! You still sin? What clothing are you dressed in? I can see nothing. And we say, hush up, little one. You're stupid. You have no right to say these things to us. We say, when we came to the cross, we were justified. We were legally declared innocent, but but we've covered up now with these new clothes, and, and we're dressed in Christ's righteousness, but we're still sinners underneath. But don't tell anybody. What utter, utter foolishness. The church today is dressed in imaginary clothing. It's not the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it's not holiness. They say, Oh, but look at the beautiful pattern, look at the beautiful colors in this thing we call grace. It's imaginary. It's false. It's not true. And many of you today listening to this broadcast will become very angry with me for saying such a thing, but I'm just a child. In my innocence, I look and I see, and I say, But they're naked. They're not dressed in real righteousness because they have none. Do you think that the Buddhist is not concerned with improving his morality? Do you think that the Muslim is not concerned about improving his morality? Do you think that the Hindu has no concern for building up his life so that he appears to be more acceptable? Of course they do. And so now comes the Christian, and he says the blood of Jesus will not cause me to stop sinning. The blood of Jesus will not dress me in real righteousness. So I have to say I'm legally forgiven, but I'm just like all the rest of you. I just have to do my best. What? And so the church in America today is dressed in imaginary clothing. The whole world looks at us and says, You're naked. You're just like we are. There's no difference between us. And we protest and say, Oh, no, 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 no. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. We're saved. Really? Really? Oh, my brother, my sister. We must come to terms with what sin is. And we must come to terms with the reality of sin. And we must come to terms with the reality of what the true righteousness of Jesus is and what it will do for us and how we can be dressed in it in reality so that we can see it and everybody else can see it because it's real, it's not imaginary. I listen to these dear deceived pastors on the radio who speak in such eloquent terms about the wonderful beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ. They talk in glowing terms about the righteousness of Jesus that allows them to continue to walk in their sin and yet they're covered over and they're saved and they're on their way to heaven and they can never lose their salvation no matter what they do. And I listen to them talk about do the best you can do because the better you can do the more fellowship you'll have with Jesus and the better you do the more rewards you'll get in heaven. What utter wicked foolishness. And yet these dear pastors are sincere in a, in a manner they'll quickly confess they're not righteous. They're naked. They don't have any clothes on. It's all imaginary. It's a game. Can you imagine a church of the Lord Jesus Christ standing in defense and approval of a man or woman who continues to walk in his sin instead of the new testament church which said you must repent you must have godly sorrow you must turn you must be crucified you must totally turn from your sin and be redeemed by the blood of jesus and its real righteousness this is such a a deception I heard one very popular preacher, well-known radio broadcaster and television broadcaster say that he believes it is not the unpardonable sin to receive the mark of the beast. And his argument was that Jesus died on Calvary for us and there is no sin that we can commit that will ever take us out of the hand of Jesus. And so even if we take the mark of the beast, we're still going to be saved. We might not be raptured, but we're still going to be saved. In the end, we will have a second chance. Utter deception, utter anti-Christian beliefs. These are Gnostic beliefs. The entire book of First John was written directly to deal with the issues of Gnosticism and to destroy the arguments of Gnosticism. And for those of you who weren't listening yesterday, Gnosticism is simply the secret knowledge. Gnosticism is the belief that the spirit cannot be touched by the wicked flesh. It's the belief that you can sin in any manner you choose in the flesh. Their illustration again was taking a piece of gold, putting it in the sewer. This filth of the sewer covers this gold but you pick that piece of gold up out of the sewer and you wash it off and the gold is untouched. It is pure, it is clean, it shines brightly, it is not tarnished. And the belief of Gnosticism is simply that the flesh is wicked or we will sin always, but the spirit is clean is untouched by sin. And so we're saved. And on the great day of God's judgment, or when we die, the outer shell of the wicked flesh will be removed and we'll go on into the kingdom of God without sin. That's Gnosticism. It's heresy. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a lie. And so we need to come to terms today with with what is sin? What is sin? The word is harmatia in the Greek. The classical Greek definition of sin is missing the mark. The deeper meaning, however, for the word harmatia is that your behavior, your life, excludes you from the prize, from sharing in the prize. Now, the scripture takes that deeper meaning and enlarges upon that. Let me read it for you. In the book of First John, chapter 3, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, everyone who has this hope of walking with Jesus must now purify himself. The word purify or purge means to cut off, to draw out, to separate from. That's why the word in the Greek aphemy is used for the translation of forgive. Because aphemy means you have separated from. You're no longer tied with. So your sin is removed and you are removed from your sin. Then he says, everyone who sins... Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness, or in the Greek, sin is utter total rebellion against righteousness. Sin is a volitional act, it is a, a volunteering of ourselves. To lie in the arms of Satan. Satan is the great lover of our culture and of our day. I'll share with you just a moment another scripture that talks about this that the person who sins is lying in the arms of the devil. It says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. He might separate us from our sins. In him is no sin. No one who lives in him will keep on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now this cuts directly across that Gnostic belief that the flesh remains wicked while the spirit remains pure. The apostle John is saying, no, the whole person must be pure. Not just the spirit. The whole person must be pure. Man's soul must be pure. He says, no one who lives in In him keeps on sinning. You can't be in Jesus and in sin. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. You notice this just totally blows away the modern church and its wicked imaginary clothing of righteousness. He's saying very plainly with simple words, if you do what is right, you're righteous. If you do what is wrong, you're a sinner. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. When a person is born from above, they are changed. There is a transformation that occurs. They're not the same. They have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. They don't continue to walk in sin. So sin is that which separates us from God. And any clothing that you think you might want to wear, regardless of the beautiful patterns that you imagine, regardless of the carefully worked out system of theology, if you continue to walk in sin, according to the scripture, you're walking in imaginary clothing because you don't know Jesus and you have not been born from above. this is why I was sharing with you yesterday this great crying out of my heart. And I have to tell you in all frankness, I could barely sleep last night. I awakened time after time to cry out before the Lord. And then I would find rest and I would go back to sleep and then A little while later, I would wake up again. I'd be wide awake. And coming out of my sleep, I'd find tears in my face, crying out before God, asking him to bring the gift of godly sorrow to your hearts, to give you eyes to see and ears to hear, and a heart that's willing to submit to Jesus right now entirely completely that you would not push away from you godly sorrow that rather you would nurture it you would encourage it you would say holy spirit bring into my soul this godly sorrow that will cause me to want to repent some of you you have no desire to repent You have believed the lie of your imaginary clothes. You have no desire to repent. Your heart is hard before God. Some of you turn to feeling sorry for yourself and saying, I guess I'm hopeless. I can't do anything. It's too late for me. No, it's not. You you must cry out to Jesus and ask him to give to you the gift of godly sorrow. For your sin, for your offenses against the Most High God. In the night, as I was praying for you, I began to review in my own heart each part of my sin life that I have led in the past, those times when I have utterly rebelled against the Lord God of heaven because of my hunger and gone out and grabbed what I wanted. Authority, success, relationships, reaching out for ambitious success, to be somebody, even to doing something great for God so that I could be somebody too. I found myself again, weeping before the Lord because of his great mercy, because of his great kindness, because of his incredible, wonderful compassion as he has forgiven me, changed me, transformed me. I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will give to you this gift of godly sorrow. That he will begin to hear the whisper of your heart as you say, Oh God, I go back to my sins because I have no real godly sorrow. I'm sorry for a few minutes and then I'm okay and then I try hard and then I fail and then I go back to my sin. Now let me be very clear with you. You cannot turn away from your sin by your own strength or your own power. This is a work that the Holy Spirit must do in you. You can say to Jesus, I cut this sin off in the name that is above all names. I cut it off in your presence, Jesus, and I ask now, by the power of Your blood, will You wash me? Will You cleanse me? Will You, will You change me, Jesus, that I don't go back to this wickedness? Now, Jesus, whatever is necessary in the way of godly sorrow, bring it fully into my heart that I can see how I have grieved you, how I have hurt you. I don't desire to walk in imaginary righteousness for another moment. I want real righteousness. I want to be purified. I want to be cleansed. I want to be made whole. I want to be born of the seed of God. It requires giving up everything, all pride, all ambition, All bitterness and all anger. It requires giving up our very soul. It means we move out of our body. It means Jesus comes in and dwells in our body. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, but leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, after you have sinned against God and you beat yourself up and you walk in condemnation, that kind of sorrow just brings death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, For those who have godly sorrow that brings true repentance, utter renunciation, utter turning away, utter giving over of my life, that I would rather die than sin against Jesus. This kind of repentance leads to salvation. And it doesn't leave us any regrets that we left our sin. I've talked with some who say, Pastor, If I leave this sin behind, I'm going to always regret it because I have such joy in it. No, that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leaves no regret because Jesus is so much more than any pleasure we might derive from our sin. Jesus is everything. Now there's another passage. I want to share this with you as well. Again, it's in 1 John. It's in the fifth chapter, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, this false teaching of the Reformed Church would say that unbelief is the greatest of sins, and so they convince you to believe a lie. Unbelief is not the greatest of sins. It is a sin. One sin will kill you as much as any other sin. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. The devil comes and says, What Jesus is asking you is impossible. I ask people regularly, Do you believe that it's possible for a person to live without sinning, And they all, with one accord, say, absolutely not. I ask the Buddhist, and he says the same thing. I ask the Muslim, and he says the same thing. I ask the Hindu, and they say the same thing. So obviously, if all of the world religions say the same thing, then all the world religions must be the same. But that's not really what the Christian faith is. the confession of the Christian is that everyone born of God overcomes the world. Everyone born of God overcomes the world, the flesh, and the devil. Or we will not be included on that great judgment day. Do you see the great the great danger in believing Satan in saying it's impossible to live without sin. That's what the devil says to us. And now he has a whole system of theology to prove that the clothes the king will wear have a beautiful woven pattern. The problem is they're all imaginary. They're make-believe. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the one who came by water and the blood. Jesus Christ, he did not come by water only, but by water and the blood. And it's the Spirit who testifies because of the Spirit there's truth. For the three testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now in verse 18, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. So if you want to deal with sin, ask Jesus if he will remove all sin from your heart. You know that if Jesus died on Calvary to destroy the works of the devil, the will of God is that all sin be destroyed in your heart and in your life. The scripture says that if you ask, he will do it. Then in verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin. That word wrongdoing, literally in the Greek, could be translated wickedness, it could be translated injustice, a lack of justice, a lack of fairness. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. Well what sin does not lead to death? All sin leads to death, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. What is that sin? It's the sin that is repented of. It is the sin that is forgiven. It is the sin that is removed from the life of a believer by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The next verse, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. That is, Jesus keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. Now, if these scriptures that I'm sharing with you are true, and I believe they are, then we have a great dilemma that faces us. Because the majority of those of you who call yourselves Christians in this day believe you're wearing the imaginary righteousness of Jesus. But on the great day of judgment, while you still walk in sin, you will be exposed as, in fact, walking naked uncovered and condemned. One time I heard I was at dinner with a couple and he said to my wife and to myself and to his wife, he named her by name and he said, she's a low-maintenance person. Immediately in my spirit I said, This couple will be divorced very soon. Any husband who would say his wife was low-maintenance does not understand the wife he has, does not understand what a relationship is about, or else he has simply cast her aside and is playing with someone else. Shortly after that, he called me, And he said, Pastor, could I come and talk with you? Yes. He came to the office and we sat down and he said, I've made a decision to divorce my wife. I did all I could to help them, but I could not help. They were both so bitter and broken. There was no reconciliation. They were unwilling to do what Jesus asked them to do and forgive one another. Marriage is not low-maintenance. Walking with Jesus Christ is not low-maintenance. If you blow into church, attend, maybe a couple times, maybe every week, maybe you give your tithes and offerings, and then off you go into the world, You're treating Jesus like a low-maintenance person. You'll soon be divorced. Or you'll simply be a cultural Christian. Walking with Jesus is high-maintenance. It requires prayer, fasting, the reading of Scripture, the walking out every day, walking step-by-step according to the commands of the Lord. It consumes totally your life. Everything else is secondary. Jesus becomes everything for you. Or you're treating him as low-maintenance and there will soon be a divorce. Now, in the few minutes we have left, I'm going to read for you an email this dear brother wrote to me good morning pastor ray as i was reading in galatians 5 today the distinction between sin and immaturity became a little clear i think galatians 519 to 21 lists deeds of the flesh that is sin galatians 522 lists the fruit of the spirit so the question i ask is am i a, am i a loving Am I loving fully? Am I always joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, under self-control? No, I'm not. And to what do I compare myself in these things? Jesus is our standard bearer who did these things perfectly. On this side of the grave, at least, I can always do these things better. So it seems to me that these Fruits are ones I'm maturing in, by the work of the Holy Spirit over the course of a saved life. What's gray is the distinction of when my lack of these things is sin rather than immaturity. God has commanded us to love our neighbors. At times I do this well, and at other times poorly. Is that immaturity? And at times not at all is that sin? Same with the rest of the fruit. The latter has to be eradicated, eradicated, e.g. lovelessness, by my choosing and by the power of the Holy Spirit working together. If I'm not in abject rebellion on the issue, His Spirit will convict me of sin in these areas. Is this your understanding? I wonder if you would thoroughly distinguish on radio what immaturity looks like in life versus sin, especially in the quantitative characteristics like the fruit of the Spirit. Thanks for any thoughts on this. This topic goes hand in hand with the one that we're dealing with regarding what is sin. And let me read for you in Galatians, the fifth chapter, what he's referring to, in verse 13, he says, You were called to be free, brothers, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Now here's where we must draw a line very carefully. It is so easy when we cast out all sin in our life to then come back and begin to establish rules regarding how we should live, other than the commands of Jesus. This takes us directly into legalism, and often holiness has been sidetracked into legalism? Am I being loving enough? Am I being aware sufficiently of another's needs? Am I ministering to my neighbor enough? Well, what is enough? The answer is found in in what I just read for you. Verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit. Not live by the law, but live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You will not sin. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature, oh, by the way, let's slow down. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. You see, the law ended when Jesus died on Calvary because no longer was legal or forensic righteousness going to be granted to anyone. Up to that point, legal forensic righteousness had been granted to people who shed the blood of animals as atoning sacrifices. But when Jesus came, the law was fulfilled. It was finished. And now, the righteousness of Jesus came into a person and makes us righteous. So now we live not under the law, but under the Holy Spirit. He is the authority that we live under now. He comes to teach us about sin. He comes to teach us about every aspect of walking in Jesus. And it is an organic growing, not leaving sin. That is not organic. Look again at John, the 15th chapter. The vine has the branches pruned. Pruning is cutting off. It is purging. It is taking out. So it says, so I say, in verse 16, this is Galatians five sixteen. live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. You see, there is a battle that is set up. That is why Jesus said, if you will follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, sinful nature, the acts, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can have on your imaginary clothes, but you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can imagine that you are declared righteous and that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees himself. That's all imaginary foolishness. When Jesus looks at you, he sees you and he sees what your heart is doing and he sees whether you have turned from sin and whether you're following him. And then there is a growing process that takes place. But the fruit of the Spirit, you notice it does not say the fruit of your labor. It is the fruit that grows out of the Spirit that now dwells in a real Christian. And the fruit of that Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Fruit is something that grows. It matures. Self-control, gentleness, faithfulness. Against such things there's no law. But those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, for you also may be tempted. So carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is what the gospel is all about. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let's not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And so I don't boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin is real, and righteousness from Jesus Christ is real. If you do not kill sin, sin will kill you. And you must decide. Now, I would very much like to hear from you. We're coming in on the closing of the month. We need to cover the radio bill, and we are still far short. We have just over $1,000 toward a bill of more than $3,000. So if the Lord has moved in your heart, and these messages have been profitable and valuable to you, could I hear from you quickly? Write to the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. I thank each of you who has already contributed. I'm going to wait and believe that Jesus will cover the cost. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon we